Because the two statements that I made about, hey, you're gifted, you're talented, there's things you're good at. And I knew that would make most people uncomfortable. And that's whenever I said, uh, and let's face it, you probably find that hard to accept or believe. Okay, I would say, um, and, and forgive me for this, but this idea of follow your passion, I violently disagree with that. People who follow their passion are usually wind up in prison. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin, and this is The Ziggler Show, episode 426. Four days ago, I received an article in my email from a guy I followed for years, one of the most brilliant and insightful minds I've ever encountered. The article was titled, The Talented Person Blind Spot. It hit on a direct sore spot I've been discussing with a close friend and business partner for the past few months. I contacted Roy's team immediately and asked for an interview on it ASAP. Four days later, here it is. Seriously, you've got to hear this. what you are and where you are because of what's gone into your mind. You can change what you are. You can change where you are by changing what goes into your mind. You cannot become what you need to be by remaining what you are. If you can't take a huge step to begin with, take as big a step as you can, but take it now. That's the key. Take it now. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. Today is a brand new day, and it's yours. Hi, everyone. This is Kevin Miller, host of The Ziggler Show, where we're here for one reason, to inspire your true performance. We all want to achieve certain things. What we have will be dependent upon what we do day in and day out. Our society voraciously consumes info on what and how to do things. But to really be able to do those right things, Zig tells us we have to first be the right person. That's what we discuss in today's show and all shows, how to be better and different. Our guest today is Roy H. Williams, world-renowned as the Wizard of Ads. His article this past week was titled The Talented Person Blind Spot, and it was just tremendous, folks. It's going to nail a lot of you, as it did me, and I think shed some freeing light on a primary handicap most of us have. Uh, though we also took some majestic detours into personal and business branding, a specialty of his, what humility actually is, my favorite definition so far. And as you heard in the intro, Roy's take uh, that he doesn't pull any punches on, on following your passions. If you're not aware of Roy H. Williams, again, he puts out a weekly Monday morning memo. Find it at mondaymorningmemo.com. Uh, it's the only written or audio publication I've ever read every time it comes out without fail, 100% of the time for years, as long as I can remember, it's amazing insight on humanity and what appeals to them. And he takes that often into the marketplace, into our business, into our work. It is tangible, applicable advice. I just can't recommend it more highly. So Roy has a compound in Austin, Texas, that's more magical kingdom and shire than business, but there he hosts some of the most profound business gatherings on the planet. Again, if you go to mondaymorningmemo.com, get connected there. You can get connected to all he does. 
So his bio for you, though, says a lifelong student of humanity, Roy H. Williams, has spent a quarter century asking what makes people do the things they do. And he's been using the things he's learned to stimulate miraculous growth for his small business clients for more than 25 years. His books and Monday morning memos are a constant source of fascination and entertainment for his students and friends around the globe. Folks, boy, can I attest to that. Uh, his first book, The Wizard of Ads, was voted Business Book of the Year in 1998. His second book, Secret Formulas of the Wizard of Ads, was named the Wall Street Journal's number one business book in America in 1999 and became a New York Times bestseller. He has other books. Please uh, go check him out. He's got 40 branch offices in the U.S., Canada, and Australia that serve the advertising and marketing needs of business owners around the globe. But again, as much as we're talking business folks, I've had just as much personal development, if not more counsel and guidance and insight from Roy than business even. And that's what we talk about today. So to this article uh, that I received earlier this week, we're going to drill down into it raw and candidly with Roy. So to set the stage, here is Roy reading it. So five and a half minutes of him reading this article, then we'll reconvene with Roy and dig in. The Talented Person Blind Spot, the Monday Morning Memo for September 19th, 2016. I'm betting you're extremely good at something, perhaps at more than just one thing. Let's face it, you're talented, gifted in fact, a classic overachiever. But the odds are 7 in 10 that you find it difficult to accept and believe these compliments. I say this because 70% of our population suffers from imposter syndrome. And it is most common among high achievers, especially people with graduate degrees, college professors on track for tenure, and research scientists. Isaac Newton, the man who changed the way we understand the universe, who discovered the laws of gravity and motion and invented calculus, suffered from imposter syndrome, saying, If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Imposter syndrome is the blind spot that comes with talent. Harold Kushner describes imposter syndrome as, the feeling of many apparently successful people that their success is undeserved. For all the outward trappings of success, they feel hollow inside. They can never rest and enjoy their accomplishments. They need constant reassurance from the people around them to still the voice inside them that keeps saying, If other people knew you the way I know you, they would know what a phony you are. Now here's the good news. Imposter syndrome is perfectly normal. What you want to avoid is the opposite, the Dunning-Kruger effect, a cognitive bias in which low-ability individuals suffer from illusions of superiority, mistakenly assessing their abilities as much higher than they really are. Everyone is messed up and broken a little. Imposter syndrome. But the most messed up are those who believe they are not. Dunning-Kruger. Scientists Dunning and Kruger believe the miscalibration of the incompetent stems from an error about the self, whereas the miscalibration of the highly competent stems from an error about others. In other words, those of us who have imposter syndrome see ourselves from the inside, where we stand naked in the shadow of old wounds, past failures, and the knowledge of our limitations. But we see others from the outside, 
where they stand majestic, beautifully illuminated in the bright glory of their successes. A close friend once asked me to tell him the secret of confidence. The key isn't to think more highly of yourself, I said, but to quit thinking so highly of others. If Dunning and Kruger's research can be trusted, it would appear that I was right. This is what I was hoping to give you today. Number one, encouragement. Talented people like yourself often feel they've just been lucky. But being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing in the right way, isn't luck. It's talent. Most people have at least one talent. Be happy that you found yours. Number two, normality. 70% of successful people wrestle with imposter syndrome. See it for what it is, and it will disappear. Number three, self-acceptance. Yes, you have deficiencies, but so does everyone else. Relax. Number four, self-awareness. I said that imposter syndrome is a blind spot among people with talent. Hopefully, now that you've seen your blind spot, it won't be a blind spot anymore. Number five, gratitude. Open your eyes to your talent and be glad of it. And if you ever figure out who gave it to you, be sure to thank them for it. Have a great week. Do great things. It's in your nature. Now today, if you'd like to read further into the studies that were mentioned, there are expanded footnotes at the end of the online version of the Monday Morning Memo where you can delve in further. Just go to mondaymorningmemo.com, look in the archives for the Monday Morning Memo for September 19th, 2016. Scroll to the bottom of the memo and you'll see those footnotes. Then you can start digging for yourself. And also, Dave Chandler is a do-it-yourself entrepreneur with no employees. Dave created Running Belt Max, a lycra waist belt used by athletes and non-athletes alike. Although Dave's product is less than a year old, it's already selling better than 97% of all sports waist belts on Amazon.com. Its first production run sold out in only 10 weeks. Listen in as Dave shares his secrets with roving reporter Rothbart via Skype from Thailand at MondayMorningRadio.com. And here's an extra little note from Rote. It's interesting to note that while about 80% of listeners to Monday Morning Radio are in North America, one-fifth of our audience is not. Our largest non-North American markets, United Kingdom, France, Spain, Japan, Singapore, and Ireland. For whatever reason, we also have regular fan clubs in Slovenia and Slovakia. All right, there you have it. That's the article that sparked this show right now. Here is Roy. So, Roy, I greatly limit the amount of input I take in on a daily and weekly basis. I don't subscribe to a lot of blogs, podcasts, or newsletters. And in all truth and admission, though, your weekly article, the Monday Morning Memo, which I have told and will continue to tell everybody to do themselves a grand favor, please go to mondaymorningmemo.com and uh, sign up for it. I read it without fail, literally 100% of the time. Uh, I, I, I'm grateful. And actually, as a fellow writer and creator and striving purveyor of truth and insight, a bit envious of your art. You blow me away with your, your writing. So thank you for honoring us with this interview on oh, such short you're, notice. You're, you're very gracious for saying all that. But I, um, when you're my age, you'll be better than I am. I promise you. But, <laughs> okay. uh, when you've been doing this for as many years as I have, you, you do pick up a few tricks. 
Uh, well, your insight is is significant. So let me set the stage here, Roy, why I grabbed you on this topic here. One of my dearest friends on the planet uh, is also a business partner. And I had epiphany, uh, an epiphany a couple months ago, actually, and shared it with him as I discerned he felt the same way. I know him well. So even with our literal, literal tangible, proven, irrefutable skills, abilities, successes, there's a core truth that we've always felt a little bit like frauds. That's the word that came to mind for me, and I'm wondering why is that? Uh, we've been discussing this for a while, and this past Monday when I got your article uh, Monday morning memo, uh, it just, it nailed me. That's it. You, you just described what we have been discussing and grappling with. So I first just wanted to ask what prompted you to write the article now? Was there a specific catalyst that, uh, got you to saying, I want, I want to give this message now this people need to hear this. Well, it's because I mentioned it in a class at wizard Academy to a, a group of students and the reaction was really strong. You could tell that a lot of people were very jolted by uh, the idea that they were perfectly normal for feeling like um, they didn't measure up, for feeling like maybe they were born on third base and were pretending they hit a triple, you know. And when I realized how strongly people reacted, I said, well, you know, maybe I need to share this a little bit more broadly. I thought this was maybe more widely known than it is. Okay. Well, so as I told you, I had everyone listen to your reading of the article, and I just want to dig in. Uh, You lead off with, This statement, I'm betting you're extremely good at something, perhaps at more than just one thing. So my first thought was, do you really believe that that most people do believe that at the core? Or were you writing to your audience who you know to be of a certain uh, striving type of personality? Okay, there was two things going on there. Uh, One of which was um, I'm setting them up with a couple of compliments that I genuinely believe that everybody, I believe that every living person is extremely good at something. I believe that. And a lot of people have multiple talents, but I've never met anybody that didn't have at least one or two things that they just had a natural knack for. They were just good at it. And they usually undervalue that. And because it's so easy for them, they think that, well, it's just easy for everybody and you're just trying to be nice. Um, But what I was trying to do, frankly, is I was trying to pay them some compliments. So it sets up um, the second statement is um, you find it difficult to accept and believe these compliments because the two statements that I made about, hey, you're gifted, you're talented, there's things you're good at. And I knew that would make most people uncomfortable. And that's whenever I said, uh, and let's face it, you probably find that hard to accept or believe. And then, bam, that's when I have them hooked. Okay. Well, you did me as well. So let me ask you about that. Uh, you, you mentioned this just, just a moment ago to a degree that when somebody has a talent, a skill, something that comes naturally to us, do you find that we tend to minimize it because it is easier for us? So we assume that it's not that big a deal. Yeah. Um, that phenomenon is um, uh, about 30 years ago, a woman at Harvard University um, Uh, came up with the term the curse of knowledge. And then that was popularized in their book Made to Stick by uh, Chip and Dan Heath. Love that. The curse of knowledge is basically this idea that when you know something, it's hard to believe that other people might not know that. Or if when you've always known something, you assume always that everybody knows it. And if something's very, very easy for you, you assume it's just as easy for everybody else. And when they act like it's a big deal, you go, well, you're just being silly. Uh, you just met my oldest son, Rex, and from the time he was born, 
He has the most extraordinary hand-eye coordination, and it manifests itself in a variety of ways. Uh, he can draw things that it just looks like he took a photograph, and he can sculpt things uh, that look exact, look more like you than you look if he sculpted your face. <laughs> and when he throws something like a baseball or a rock, he can knock a squirrel off a branch from like 40 yards with one throw, and he thinks – now, everybody could do this. It's not that hard. And I'm going, and he literally his whole life believes other people can do these things. I'm going, really, truly, really, Rex, the rest of us can't do that. And he's never gotten through his head that uh, the thing that is just as is, is easy as waking up in the morning for him would be something the rest of us are unable to do. So, yeah, I think everybody has those blind spots. Okay, that's good. So one of my best friends is a sculpture. Can I give him that line? That's what I want on his website. Sculptures that look more like you than you do. <laughs> exactly. Right. And good sculpture does because it captures um, some of the, the nuances of your expressions. Yeah. And so in that signature moment, um, whenever you have one eyebrow raised or a certain corner of your mouth turned down or one eye slightly uh, squeezed a little more closed than the other um, – you don't do that when you're posing for a photograph, but everybody that knows you sees you do that 10,000 times. And so, yes, a, a sculptor can capture the essence of you that looks more like you than you do. Okay. I like that. Okay. So uh, uh, forgive me, uh, Roy and everybody listening. I'm going to take a quick detour. Roy, I've got you here talking on a specific personal development uh, issue, though I began following you because of the branding and marketing focus that you are uh, a master at. So from a brand standpoint, what you just said on sculptures is interesting to me because I at one point looked at and talking about our personal brand, in mm -hmm. essence, looking at caricatures, you know, the folks that do the little comic caricatures right, and right. they tend to take those little nuances of you and exaggerate them. And I thought from a personal brand standpoint, that sounds good. Give us a little bit just on that, just for a business brand, personal brand uh, detour here. Okay. So what you're going to find, it's really bizarre. You would bring this up because uh, one week from, from Monday on Monday, I'm talking about the founding fathers mm -hmm. and I'm talking about the book that all of the founding fathers had in common. It's a book that all of them read. And most people don't know that. And then the following week, I start talking about the very subject that you just got through saying. And it's about crafting believable, attractive, fictional characters. Now, when you start talking about a brand, you have to understand a brand is a fictional character. Just like uh, a character in a novel or a TV show or a movie or a book, you know, it, it's, a, it's a fictional character because it has personality. And it has certain things that cause this character or this brand to think, spiel, think, speak, act, and feel the way they do. The, the, they see the world a certain way. And your decisions as a company or as a brand or as a spokesperson for a brand reveal your motivations and a, a certain personality and style. And so when you're crafting um, a spokesperson for a brand or when you're crafting the, uh, the language that's going to be the style guide for that brand, there's a very specific way to do it. And, uh, in, and what I want to talk about is actually um, two weeks from now and then again three weeks from now, those memos are already written. And it is um, fictional characters in advertising. And we're going to go really deep into that in the memo and then in the rabbit hole. But um, predictable characters are boring. And the reason that most people don't have uh, a really magnetic style in their, their writing or their brand voice is because they, they, don't, they don't understand you have to have a conflicted character. 
See, there are no harder choices in life than the choice between two good things. Mm -hmm. And when you're torn between two good things, you are conflicted and it, it, it is perceived as a vulnerability or a weakness. And this is why most brand voices seem plastic and artificial and phony and hollow. And, and everybody uses a language I call ad speak. Um, but this idea, what you nailed just purely intuitively was, hey, these, these kind of bizarre characteristics that uh, we, we want to take something that's true. We're actually, the, the, the actual number is four, four specific things that are true and exaggerate them. You want to minimize all the other things that are true so that you can exaggerate these four in exactly wow. the same way a caricature artist would if he's giving if he's sketching you on vacation. You know, you're at the beach, you're in Hawaii or somebody, and they sketch you and they exaggerate certain features and minimize others. And that's what you've got to do when you're crafting a brand voice or you're you're designing a spokesperson for a brand. So yeah, well, you nailed it. Two questions then. One, would you grant me another interview on that topic for our business owners that we have a large amount of in the Ziegler audience. Happy to do it. Just uh, as soon as it comes out, look it over. It'll just tell us that after the founding fathers, uh -huh. there's uh, there's two in a row talking about the thing we just talked about. So it'll be about three weeks from now. Okay, beautiful. And are you going to reveal the uh, book they all read or is that under wraps? Believe it. I want you to guess first. I'll tell you, but first you have to guess. My first thought was the Bible. Nope. Don Quixote de la Mancha. I should have known that reading your stuff. Darn. And by the okay. way, when you read that memo, okay. uh, I have – this is unimpeachable um, footnotes. This is actually official government websites that confirm and, and all uh, – if you look at George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and um, let's see. I'm trying to think of the fifth one. So we have George Washington, George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was utterly obsessed with Don Quixote. He wrote about him for 51 years in his personal correspondence. And then Benjamin Franklin and uh, Hamilton. Um, so those were the five founding fathers that were deeply, deeply, deeply fascinated before the Revolutionary War and then all the way up through uh, the, the crafting of the Constitution. They were reading Don Quixote. And when you realize that and you begin to understand how it affected them and their outlook and their vision for America, it's pretty fascinating. Okay. Well, folks, and, and I'm going to keep talking about the mondaymorningmemo.com. Is that still the best place? They can go there. They can subscribe. And through that, of course, they get the links to everything you're doing and connect there. Yeah. Okay. It's a double opt-in. So they're going to get the little email after they subscribe. And if people forget to respond to that email, uh, they're still not subscribed. Okay. So as you guys hear these nuggets and you want more, go there. That's how you'll get in. All right. So thank you. I will follow up with you on that. I'm, I'm intrigued. We need to hear that from you on branding. But back to this article. So the next thing that you write in there that I want to ask about, you said, let's face it, you're talented, gifted, and in fact, a classic overachiever. But the odds are 7 in 10 that you find it difficult to accept and believe those compliments. So my experience in our culture right now, and I don't know, I'm asking it may be more now than in the past is we shy away from compliments. Like it's a badge of honor and some expectation to discount ourselves and negate our obvious abilities. I mean, finding someone who can humbly 
uh, yet confident, confidently and, and graciously accept an authentic compliment. seems like it's finding Waldo. Yet I see my, my little kids, they do it readily. They'll go, yeah, I'm good at that. And they'll accept it. And, and it's, it's, it is, it's humility, but it's a fact. While my older ones I see tend to become more Waldo-like, what is it in us that tends to not be able to take a compliment? I think it's probably uh, in our culture, uh, when you hear somebody say, oh, that person is just so full of themselves, or I just hate them, they're so stuck up. And so whenever a person um, out of earshot, instead of saying it to their face, they say it to everybody else after that person is gone. And so as we grow older, we are taught from our peers that people who um, who – think highly of themselves or who have a great deal of, of confidence are um, suspect. And the only way to survive in our culture, in my opinion, if you have a great deal of confidence, is you have to be super generous in affirming other people. And if you're hmm. constantly affirming other people, um, and, and, and the really great leaders do this. Mm-hmm. Great leaders are always quick to affirm and they don't flatter people because we hate flattery. We hate it. Uh, whenever somebody, but if somebody speaks to you and points out something that you're really good at and you know you are and, and you, you accept that and they make you feel great, well, then that person can stand up and be bold and be declarative and, and be a, a strong natural leader and nobody criticizes them for that. And so um, too often people who have confidence don't hand out the compliments and the affirmations to others and, and that's why we become very, very hesitant to ever uh, accept compliments because we don't want people to, to rip us to shreds when our back is turned. Wow. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. And you just described Zig. I mean, the guy, of course, yeah. was an encourager, but not a flatterer. I, I like that a lot. Uh, you know, last night at my dinner table, my 10 year old son had written, he's writing a story on Jacob in the Bible. Uh, it blew us away, blew us away. The guy is, is amazing. And we just testified authentically to that. We're not flattery. Uh, I've I've rarely seen one of my kids light up that authentically. Yeah, uh, well, no, soul. he knew he did. He knew he did a good job. He did. And so, uh-huh. if you told him something was good and he knew it was complete crap, then you're just you know being a you know a flattering father, uh-huh. which is not uncommon. Um, but whenever you tell somebody something and they know it's true, then you know it's uh-huh. as a matter of fact a, a, a real authentic compliment, a small compliment, but it's authentic. Um, has the biggest gap of cause and effect of anything in the whole universe. The effect is so huge and the cause or the effort is so small. It seems like if people got that through their head, they would look for more opportunities to affirm people because what it accomplishes is so much out of proportion to what it costs. Before we continue right there and on that note of accomplishing so much more in proportion than what it costs, I want to thank ZipRecruiter for sponsoring this episode of The Ziggler Show. we got a lot of business owners in The Ziggler audience, and if you own or run a business, you have to hire and find quality team members. Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates most efficiently and effectively? So posting your job in one place is not enough to find quality candidates. I know I've gone through that hassle. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can with Zip. 
ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. You can find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, hire the right person fast. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. Uh, right now, Ziggler listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Again, folks, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Well, so folks, you just heard that. And in the show prior, 425 that I did with Tom Ziegler, we talked on that. And I addressed Tom, asked him about the aspect of, uh, for those folks who don't get encouragement, what's a way for them to, to get that? And of course, Tom replied back with, go encourage others. Yeah, uh, So thank you, thank you for affirming that. Okay, next in the article, you write, I say this because 70% of the population suffers from imposter syndrome, and it is most common among high achievers, especially people with graduate degrees, college professors on track for tenure, and research scientists. Imposter syndrome is a blind spot that comes with talent. Uh, and you say, you go on to say, Harold Kushner describes imposter syndrome as the feeling of many apparently successful people that their success is undeserved for all the outward trappings of success. They feel hollow inside. They can never rest and enjoy their compliment, their accomplishments. They need constant reassuring from the people around them to still the voice inside that keeps saying, if other people knew the, knew you the way I knew you, I know you, you would know what a phony you are. Okay. So on that, Roy, I had a realization uh, in my past and working with people who were trying to uh, succeed in different areas and I saw two people, one, the, the arrogant, uh, who sometimes then they'd right. go and they'd, right. they'd achieve something. And then those who were somewhat ignorant and they didn't know any better than to know that they couldn't. And yet in between were the intelligent, the self-aware that seemed to be the quickest to discount themselves. Mm. Uh, and I feel like that's what you were talking to here. The talented, the ones with the degrees are the quickest to do that, and, and you just talked about it a bit, but yes, yeah, I mean that's that's who I'm wanting to speak to today because I think here at the Ziegler audience we have a, a striving people, people who understand that there is more, that they're called to more, and yet yes, we are so quick. And uh, Roy, I mean, I'm talking to myself, I do that sure. as well, and I, I, that's why I needed to hear, I needed to read your article here, I need to hear it, and I wanted to dig in more on the yeah again, just more of that healthy healthy, acceptable way. So to some degree too, you're, you're also calling us to, to know, maybe we have an inkling, but do we know our strengths? Is that a big part of your work and working with people? Let's clarify those. Not really. Okay. What I'm saying is, um, to, to have confidence in your strengths, um, can, is, it doesn't solve the problem. Okay. okay. Because when you have confidence in your strengths and you know that you're really good at something, you still have this vast amount of stuff where you feel like uh, you talk a better game than you play. Mm -hmm. And so imposter syndrome, even if you don't have it in the area where you're strong, okay, even if you finally have managed to accept that you're exceptional in a few ways, that still doesn't solve the problem of imposter syndrome. And um, I think what it comes down to for me, and, and I was trying to, to 
to think. You know, everybody always wants to know, well, Roy, do you suffer from imposter syndrome? Uh, well, I was going to ask, of course. Well, and, and, and the answer is, strangely, no. And I think I know why. I think I have a suspicion why. But I had a, a very uh, dramatic spiritual encounter at age 18. And I think I have – my suspicion is I have a, a far more profound sense of the grace of God than the average person. And so this idea of feeling guilt or like I'm coming up short or any kind of condemnation at all, I mean I don't have that in the tiniest bit. And so when you understand – deep in your heart that everybody is a screw-up, absolutely everybody, and there's nobody that's really worth uh, the love of God. Then you begin to go, wow, this is just an amazing thing that he likes me anyway. I really am not. I mean, it's like I know me, and, and the fact that God likes me anyway is astounding. And then once you finally get that through your head, and it's not because you deserve it or, you, you know, you've done anything. And I think one of the great heresies, frankly, is when people say, well, you know, God sees who you can become. Oh, shut up. That's not scriptural. That's just heresy. He doesn't see who I can become. He sees who I am right now, warts and all, ugly, stinky, smelly, stupid, foul-mouthed. And he goes... I still like you. I still like you. And so that idea, I don't think that I'm screwed up any more than anybody else. I think everybody is screwed up. And when you get that through your head, then you realize none of us, I mean, all of us are faking it. All of us are just bumbling through life, doing the best we can. And a little bit further in the, in the article, you'll realize everything I just got through saying, the secret isn't to think more highly of yourself. The secret is to quit thinking so highly of everyone else. Quit admiring these other people like they're not screw-ups because the simple fact is they are. And so this is the thing that I think most people don't understand when I talk about imposter syndrome. I really am not saying have more belief in yourself. What I am saying is, hey, you see yourself pretty accurately. If you would see other people just as accurately, you wouldn't feel inferior. You would realize they're not that big a deal either. You're comparing yourself to an impossible standard, so quit it. Does that make sense? Uh, well, you just dove in. Exactly. Yes, it does. And you just really answered the question that I had. But I'm going to put it out here. We do have a highly faith-based audience here. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I'm going to bring it to something just so that you can take away oops, take away any obstacles people have. So you said uh, scientists Dunning and Kruger believe the miscalibration of the incomp- uh, incompetent stems from an error about the self, whereas miscalibration of the highly competent stems from an error about others. And uh, you said a close... That's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. So okay. when you look at other people and you think they deserve their success, it's like, no, they don't. They talk a better game than they play. They come up short again and again. Um, they're posing. And it's kind of like, even if they don't realize they're posing, yeah. they're posing. And when you just realize, it's like, calm down, everybody. None of us are what we pretend to be. So the fact that you kind of know that you're not as good as you appear to be, all right, neither is anybody else. That's the thing. That's what people need to understand. We, we, we have a hero worship in this society. We're looking for mentors and we're looking for role models. It's like, quit it. Quit doing that. It's just crazy. You know, uh, you can learn from everybody around you, from the lowest to the highest, but don't rank them. Don't look up and admire people. It's just not healthy. And I mean, that's totally counter to our culture, but, you know, 
You, you asked the question. I did, and I'm going to ask another one on that, though. I don't want to leave this. I don't want to forget it. I don't want people to get hung up here. So I want you just to do, even if it's elementary, do a quick reconciliation for those folks who are too well implanted with Philippians 2-3 out of the Bible. This is the King James Version. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Okay, but see... Let's examine the word better. Right. Okay. It, to prefer another one, to serve the other person before you serve yourself. And it doesn't mean this other person is morally superior to me. That is not what that scripture is saying. He's saying, I'm going to prefer this person. I'm going to give before I receive. I'm going to give up the best seat at the feast mm. to them instead of claiming it for myself. And so this idea of in honor preferring one another is about behavior. It's not about looking down at yourself like a lowly worm and looking up at people around you thinking that they're all better than you. That is not what that scripture is saying. And I would challenge anybody to go to the original text and and they'll find out I'm right. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Back to something you said a minute ago, though. In my work, I've done a lot of work over the years with people who desire to be coaches and consultants. A lot of them were impacted by a coach, a consultant, a leader, a guide, a mentor. They want to do that. They want to be that for other people. And yet they struggle in coaching on a truth, let's say, on something that we know to be well and good and helpful. And yet we struggle to give that partake, to, to give that information because we know that we are struggling with that. I see so many people who have great value to offer. And then I realize myself, I'm blown away sometimes here at the show that I can sit here and talk and espouse wisdom that I know I am struggling like mad on. And that keeps so many people from doing that. So that aspect of teaching while struggling, give us some insight. Okay. Now you keep opening these doors. I'm hesitant to go through these doors because these are going to be pretty, pretty heady things. Okay. Please do. Okay, let's look at the definition or the two different definitions of hypocrite or hypocrisy, okay? Now, most people believe a hypocrite a hypocrite is a person who says one thing and then does something else, okay? Well, let's examine this for a moment. Number one, it was Thomas Jefferson who wrote, all men are created equal. You realize that, right? Okay. The Declaration of Independence. All men are created equal, written by Thomas Jefferson. And, but yet, he never freed his own slaves. As a matter of fact, and this is the official government website, U.S. government, they now know from DNA tests that, yes, Thomas Jefferson had children with his slave, Sally Hemings, after his wife died. Thomas Jefferson was married once. His wife died very young. Um, the, The girl... That was her uh, handmaid, was actually her half-sister through her dad. Her dad slept with his slaves. So this is like really touchy stuff here. So yeah, Thomas Jefferson was sleeping with his slaves, never freed them. But yet he said, all men are created equal. Mm -hmm. What's up with that? Mm -hmm. Well, now, I have a little different definition of hypocrite. I don't think Thomas Jefferson was a hypocrite because he said, this thing I believe— Do I water it down to the level that I can live up to? Or do I say the truth, even though I'm falling horribly short of it myself? And I say that Thomas Jefferson said, you know what? I'm falling horribly short of this myself. 
I'm not living up to what I believe, but I am not going to water down the truth, and I'm not going to shorten what I believe, and I'm not going to minimize it, and I'm going to say it less powerfully than it deserves. And so he just put it out there for time and eternity. All men are created equal. And um, I go, okay, gosh, Tom, that was, that was pretty bold because you certainly didn't live up to that. So this idea of do you believe a thing enough to say the thing? It's not you that you're putting on trial. It's the idea. Separate the idea. Separate the truth from yourself and separate the truth from your ability to live up to it. And if you say, okay, I'm going to give myself the freedom and the grace to do that. I'm going to give myself the freedom to tell other people, hey, look, this is the right thing, and I fall short of it myself, but it's still the right thing. Why is that not a good thing to do? I, I love it. Would you, and for my own benefit, and so other people can hear it again, and I, I wasn't typing fast enough, will you repeat that again? Do I want his statement? Do I water it down to the level I can live up to, or? Yeah, what I'm saying is he didn't actually say that. That's me well, putting words pe- in his mouth. Well, but this boy, idea yeah. of, do I water down the truth yeah. to the level that I can live up to? Do I minimize it? Do I shorten it? Do I, you know, um, make it thin and watery and transparent? And see, you see people do this all the time. People are constantly wanting to reframe things to their level, their their comfort zone. Right. And whether it's moral issues or whether it's, you know, religious or political, it doesn't matter. Everybody always wants to say, well, here's what I believe. Well, they're telling you what they wish was the truth. But the simple fact is the more honest person will say, no, I'm not going to water this down to the level that I can live up to. I'm just going to say it. And even though it's a bigger truth and even though it's a more powerful thing than I will ever probably attain, I'm going to say the truth. And then I can just apologize that I'm falling short of it myself, but it's the truth nonetheless. And I think that more people need to have that courage and they need, they, they, they need to quit believing that they can't say a thing or believe a thing unless they are the perfect role model of it. Mm-hmm. That's just another manifestation of imposter syndrome. Okay. I'm going to be using that quote from you uh, for the rest of my life. I believe water. Do I water it down to the level I can live up to? That is uh, profound and, and I think should be freeing for a lot of people. I hope uh, so. I hope so. Thank you. Well, so in the, in the article, uh, you said, this is what I was hoping to give you today, encouragement, which is, of course, Zig Ziglar's foundational core cry and platform. And you, you wrote, talented people like yourself often feel they've just been lucky, but being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing in the right way isn't luck, it's talent. Most people have at least one talent. Be happy that you found yours. Okay, so I'll, I'll make this personal, Roy. I know I am a great opportunist. Um, mm-hmm. I have good insight with people and circumstances, great relational skills, connecting with people, earning their trust comes easily and naturally for me. And I've honed it as well. I do hone it. Uh, so, and then I know on certain areas, there's things that I know enough to be dangerous in, but am I really a master? Can I really within that opportunity, take advantage and provide real value. Again, amidst, even in spite of hordes of testimony, successful business ventures, strong relationships, there's still that root feeling and that equilibrium. I feel like I'm repeating it, but it's just, you you keep uncovering different layers of this onion. Uh, Is there an equilibrium between 
Well, the, the big word, humility, self-doubt, and, and the peace with the reality that, yes, I have skill. Okay. Now, see, I don't think humility is self-doubt. Okay. See, I think self-doubt isn't humility. Um, self-doubt is a uh, persecution complex. You know, self-doubt. Uh, as a matter of fact, did you realize that you cannot actually have genuine humility until you first have confidence? Huh. Okay. Think, think it through for a minute. Okay, right. Humility without confidence is just, uh, you know, Eeyore the donkey. You know, it's just, it's woe is me. It's the natural, it's the born loser. It's the person who is, is uh, desperately in need of a hug. Now, confidence without humility is, you know, Dunning-Kruger syndrome. Confidence mm-hmm. without humility is a pompous ass. Right. And so confidence, it's like, yeah, I'm really good at this. But on the other hand, other people are good at other things. Plenty of people are equally as good at their thing as I am at my thing. So, yeah, I'm really confident. I'm super good at this. And I would challenge you. See, every time I find somebody that's really extraordinary at something, they're always looking for someone who's better at that than they are so they can learn from them. And what you said was, I know I'm really good at this, but am I a master? Well, here's my question for you. Who do you look up to that you actually think is significantly better than you at those things you're good at? Uh, You're one of them. No, I'm really not. As a matter of fact, I don't have your skills at all. When you were talking about all those things that you're good at, your natural connection with people and earning their trust, et cetera, it might look like that, but I'm actually, it's rehearsed. I'm a very deep introvert and I'm an extremely good writer. And so I never talk about what I am thinking. Mm. I simply announce what I have already thought. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. And so uh, anytime you're talking to an introvert, everything comes out uh, with a certain quality of proclamation. But that in the moment, natural connection with people, man, I'm bad at that. I'm horrible at that. And I, I see everybody around me has is better at, at just reaching out and connecting. Uh, I tend to freeze up whenever I'm face to face with a bunch of people. It's like, uh, you know, I'm not sure what to do here. Small talk is beyond me. Mm-hmm. But yet um, I look at you. And I say, no, you know, if you can't find the guy who really is better than you, then you're the guy. And I see this with my clients all the time. They're incredibly good at something. And they're always looking for someone who's better at that than them that they can learn from. And they ask me, do you know anybody who who I can learn from? I'm going, no, believe it or not, you're the best at that that I've ever met. So why do you keep thinking you need to get even better still? Mm -hmm. Because everybody else is looking up to you. And so this is, again, the imposter syndrome raising its head, thinking that, you know, no matter how good we are at something, we're still falling somehow short. And falling short is uh, it's a it's a horrible monkey to carry on your back. It is. OK, uh, so humility, that was uh, literally the next thing I wanted to ask you about. And you just covered it. I want to repeat it. Humility is not self-doubt, folks. We need to hear that in a big way. And that aspect of you can't have true humility without Confidence. I know it makes sense when you say it there, but I can't tell you that I have um, really seen it that way. That's profound, Roy. Oh, thank you. Um, these are the things you just think about in the middle of the night when you get up early. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you uh, for thinking and delivering your art uh, to us. 
Okay. Well, you end here and I could talk on this all day, but, uh, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go through and digest this and take out. I usually, I like to take out an excerpt from the interview and put it at the top of the show. Uh, uh-huh. I'm going to be, I'm going to be sitting here for a while trying to figure out which one to take out of the good ones here. But your last statement is gratitude. You said, open your eyes to your talent and be glad of it. And that's a big point to me, Roy. I've, I've had, um, I've had times of struggling with being that, uh, unfortunately, the pompous ass that, that you that you described, and judgment and a critical spirit towards people who are who are missing a truth that's hurting them and others, and I, I, I'm upset. Uh, but with a healthy res- perspective, I realize gratitude. Thank you, Lord, for this revelation that you've opened my eyes to something. You've opened my ears that I now have, and with that gratitude, let me give it and have grace uh, with people. I mean, what a what a privilege and. Um, was there a time when I wanted to ask on that, on a, on a revelation, we just talked about it with humility, something you thought about. And is is that something that you find that there are these times of revelation in a certain area? And if you've even got a specific one as of late or in the past that was strong to you say, Hey, this is something I was blind to. I was given this and I'm so grateful. Now I get to give it. Well, yeah, I think everybody has those moments. I think everyone has a life message. And uh, if most people, again, it was like when I was talking about my oldest son and his hand-eye coordination and his lifelong ability just to do anything that involves um, drawing, sketching, painting, you know, any of that, uh, throwing. And it comes very naturally. And we undervalue that which comes naturally. And so the thought is that if you learn to accept that you are exceptional and you can be grateful for those skills – and then you can recognize the other skills that other people have. That's humility. Uh, it's, it's not a lack of confidence in yourself. It's just a recognition of everybody else being just as special as you are. Okay. Now, this idea of, 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 of having a life message, I think that everybody has one. And it's so natural to them. It's something that is so systemic and so much part of every breath they take they sometimes don't even realize this is a life message for them. This is a thing that they understand so intrinsically and everybody learns this from them, but because it's invisible to them, it goes back to the the blind spot of a talented person. The thing that you're incredibly good at is usually a blind spot for you because you just take it for granted. And I think that when you, when you learn to look at everybody and say, this person's incredible at something, they have an amazing gift for me. Let me see if I can figure out what it is. Because if I ask them, they won't be able to tell me because they don't even know they have this amazing perspective or this, this skill or this outlook or, or this, this message for, for the world. But everybody does. And so uh, it's really fun you bring up the gratitude thing, okay, because um, very, very young, I was maybe 19, and the very first time I ever heard Zig speak was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's like 4,000, 5,000 people in this auditorium. And he talked several times that day about having an attitude of gratitude. Now, you've heard Zig say that how many thousands of times? Mm -hmm, Attitude of gratitude. And that was probably the first time that um, as a virtue, gratitude as a skill that opens the door to happiness. And if you can learn to be grateful, and so, you know, count your blessings. It's like every day, just figure out all of the delightful little good things that are happening in this moment and to look around not for the problems in your life, but for the things you can celebrate, to learn to celebrate the ordinary, 
And that idea of celebrating the ordinary every day, the small things, is to live with an attitude of gratitude. I learned that from Zig very, very young. And so that one, I remember exactly where I was and exactly who gave it to me. And ah. I think that that was maybe for him one of his biggest life messages yeah. was um, that that 24-7 attitude of gratitude. So I thank Zig for that. Uh, likewise. And, and thanks for bringing that uh, to our forefront again. And I think I said that that was my last question, but you said something. If you will grant me a moment more, I have, sure. I have something else that I think that you'll bring value to all of us with. You said we undervalue that which comes naturally. You're well aware, I'm sure more than I am even, of the proliferation of the, from a work career uh, pursuit, follow your passions. Uh, I am so passionate, uh, dramatically passionate about music. Uh, I have no skill there, but it is one of the beacons and pillars of my life and my inspiration. I, I adore it. It's a big part of our family. My kids now all play and sing and whatever. I don't, but it's, it's a passion, not one that I need to pursue. So give us a little insight on the pursuing the passions in re relation to what do we actually, the ability skills that we have uh, naturally. Okay. I would say, um, and, and forgive me for this, but this idea of follow your passion, I violently disagree with that. People who follow their passion are usually wind up in prison. <laughs> when you follow okay. your passion, um, and, and by the way, passion does not produce commitment. Commitment wow. produces passion. And if you commit to something, cold, unfeeling, irrevocable commitment, you're willing to die on this mountain. You are committed. No turning back. Passion will follow. And so what it comes down to is choice. We are creatures of choice. I believe that's what it means to be made in the image of God. It doesn't mean two eyes, two nostrils, a left and a right hand. To be made in the image of God, I think that God actually said, I'm going to make mini me. I'm going to make a creature that can look me in my face and say, no, I hear you, but I'm not going to do it. No. And to say, wait a minute, how can God be sovereign? and us be able to say no. It's because we are made in his image. He, he made us like him. And so when you say, wow, choice is this astoundingly powerful, creative thing. And when I choose something, passion will follow. And what I say is, you admire music, you love music, music thrills you. You did not choose music. If you chose music, you could become as good at it as you chose to be. It was the commitment that you sent in a different direction. And so appreciate music, love music, feel, let music feel, make you feel good, admire it, admire people who are good at it, but never say to anyone, follow your passion because people believe following their passion is going to make them happy. I've never once seen it happen ever. People who make a commitment and they honor that commitment and they never flinch passion follows. And I see those people very contented, very successful. Um, and passion is, is birthed by commitment. Think marriage. Think marriage. Okay. Penny and I are extremely very married. We've been married 40 years. And it's, it's just the unwavering commitment that both, both of us brought to the marriage. And so 
profoundly and deeply in love, but we both realize love flows from commitment. Passion flows from commitment. What we need in America today is not more passion. What we need is more commitment. Okay. Uh, that We're going to stop right there and let folks chew on that. Turn this podcast off and sit there and mull that over, folks. Roy, thank you again for the quick interview on this. I just, uh, I sent the article right away to my partner. I wanted to do this. Now we're going to let tens of thousands of people listen to this folks again, to connect with Roy, go to Monday morning That's the weekly article that I read 100% of the time without fail. I save them. I think I've gotten a couple different degrees by reading, uh, those things. Uh, thank you for your art. Well, thank you for uh, saying so. Oh, my, my honor. Folks, thanks for tuning in. We will have Roy back here to dig into some of what we talked about today because he's gracious enough to grant that. Thanks for tuning in to The Ziggler Show and letting us inspire our true performance together. Mm-hmm.